What's up, everybody? Welcome to Giraffe Chaff. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts, and joining me, as per usual, Ben Fisher, who's being a total jerk today. <laughs> What's up, Ben? So Zach ran away from his computer real quick. So I deleted our intro from the notes, and I typed in its place. Let's see if you have the intro memorized, because. <laughs> But, but let's find out to to elaborate. He didn't just delete the intro where I say, like, what's up and welcome to the show and everything. He deleted like everything after that, too, where I talk <laughs> about like what we're doing this week and our sponsor and discord and all that kind of stuff. So, look, you just said all of it. So clearly you're fine. <laughs> no, I know I, I am good, but it's just the principle of it. I walked away for two <laughs> seconds. But anyway. This week, it's episode number 37, and we are on to our Flavortown episode. We're doing a Flavortown Kaldheim. We're going to talk all about Kaldheim as a plane, kind of the story behind the plane itself, and some of the things that Ben and I really appreciated coming out of the cards in this set from a story perspective and a lore perspective. We'll get into that. And don't worry, uh, those of you that are more here for gameplay, we are still going to be talking about how these cards have been working out for us. Absolutely. Before we get into that, of course, we have to plug the Discord. Discord is kind of the best place to go to keep in touch with us and the rest of our community, as we've been lovingly calling them, the Traficionados. If you're interested in chatting all things Kaldheim, all things MTG, all things meme, I guess, uh, <laughs> the Discord's the best place to do that, so check that out. The link to that is in the episode description, as well as on our Twitter. And, of course, the show is brought to you by you, the listener, via Patreon. You can, if you're not a patron already, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash pod. But if you are a patron, thank you very much. And uh, we really, it still blows both of our minds that we have people supporting us monetarily. Yeah. It's really, really incredible. Um, thank you for your support and keeping us doing this week to week. Yeah, you're all the best. And uh, speaking of which, looks like you made it through the whole intro. You didn't even need the notes. <laughs> well done. Thanks. All right. So let's get into the crack a draft type thing for this week. Now, I have a bit of a spicy one here. I actually have a pack three pick one, and we're going to ignore a card from it because, uh, well, I guess I'll get to that. So, so far, I've had a pretty great draft. I actually pack one picked one to Clarion Spirit and followed it up with a Ruined Crown and a Doomscar Oracle. But then white dried up entirely. Uh, so I actually was past a Cosima, a God of the Voyage. And look, if blue's open in Kaldheim, I'm not going to ignore that kind of signal. The opportunity to get past stuff like Bergstriders or Behold the Multiverses? Yes, please. So I moved into blue, and then green started flowing, too. I picked up a really late struggle for Skentenfar. Uh, and then after that, stuff just started coming together. Uh, I noticed that Snowlands were still in the packs. So uh, about midway through pack one, I started picking up Snowlands. I got a Shimmer Drift Veil was my first one, then an Ice Tunnel next, and then uh, so a Volatile Fjord came a little later. And in between, I started picking up these these good solid blue and green cards. So in pack two, I got past a Yorn God of Winter, as well as some other good stuff. Uh, Struggle for Skemfar, Bergstrider, Ravenous Lindworm, Avalanche Caller came really late. A great sign that I was in the right place. Pilfering Hawk, uh, Sculptor of Winter, uh, and a Path to the World Tree, which I picked up in pack two. And I picked up some other Snowlands in there. Uh, a Snow-Covered Island, Snow-Covered Forest. So I am hard blue-green snow at this point. I've pivoted away from the the white deck as much as i love clarity and spirit this is this is looking sweet so i opened my pack three and what do i find but a uh, a coma the, the serpent uh, obviously this is just a grand slam coma i'm already in a very good blue green deck and i just opened the best card in the set which happens to be in blue green sure but i want to ignore coma for this this uh, crack a draft type thing look the reason we left it called crack a draft type thing is because this is not a crack a pack we can do whatever we want here there are no rules except the rules which we set ourselves right so 
ignoring the coma, I actually want to talk about the rest of this pack. If the coma weren't in the pack, I want to talk about what we take because I, it's a stumper. Yeah, so that's where you really get into the decision points. We were talking before mm -hmm. the show, and Ben and I were discussing just how many possible, act, like, actually decent picks are in this pack. Uh, and we really couldn't fault anybody for picking any of these cards. So why don't you yeah. walk us through it? So the first one up is Icebind Pillar. Obviously fantastic in a snow deck. It's a removal spell that scales with the game. Great. Next, Path to the World Tree, uh, as it's been called, uh, Cruel Ultimatum, because it, it kind of feels like that when you activate yeah. it. And this deck is obviously the kind that could activate it. I've already got one in the deck. Next up in the pack, Replicating Ring. This deck has a good late game in Berg Striders and Linworms, uh, and it could use the ramp and the color fixing, depending on if I'm hoping to pick up some more snow stuff in pack three. Uh, then there's some nonsense white cards, which we can ignore. Uh, uh, there's a uh, Augur Raven, which is, you know, just great. Uh, I think it's a little bit worse than the previous ones we've talked about. Maybe a little bit better than the ring. Next up, we've got a Feed the Serpent, which I'm not super in black, although I do have a Draugr Necromancer hiding in my deck, which at this point I haven't decided if I'm playing or not. I did end up playing it uh, because I got there on black duels and snowlands. There's a Demon Bolt in the pack, and I do have several red uh, duels, uh, including red, green, and red, blue. So I, I'm already splashing red with my primary colors. And then there's also, <laughs> I'm not done, Shiver Drift Veil, and Snow-Covered Mountain, all in this pack. I, I, I wanted to just scoop up the entire pack and call it a draft. Yeah, I mean, from a power perspective, you might be getting there by taking the coma. Like, coma might be giving you the power of all of these cards put together. Mm -hmm. But without the coma, this is this is a messy pick because, as you mentioned, ice uh, uh, the Icebind Pillar is phenomenal. It's going to help you get to your late game. It's going to help your Ravenous Lindworms do their thing and actually get through. So, you know, great. Love to pick that up. Path yeah. of the World Tree, really, I don't feel like these decks can really ever have too many of them, and two is certainly not the number that, that is too many. Yeah, I, I think I'm a little lower on Replicating Ring than some of these other cards. It's it's a fantastic card that, like, when it can do its thing, but it takes so much time to actually do that thing that I don't yeah. know that it's actually worth it. I'd much rather just have Svela. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Augury Raven is a fantastic card, but you do have a lot of two drops already, so you don't really need the Fortel padding. And in the four drop slot, you don't really have much, but I don't think it outclasses like Icebind Pillar. I think you'd rather just take Icebind Pillar. You're you're a little weak to flyers, mm, um, so yeah, the Raven true. would be nice in that aspect. But the Pillar also deals with that, so I think I'd still just want to take the Pillar over the Raven. And then Th this deck, uh, this deck could really use a Mistwalker, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. To kind of get it there, like it's got Cosima and Yorn. Like, clearly, if you get to the late game, this wants to do some absurd things, but the question is, how will it get there? Right, right. Yeah, and then, you know, you have Feed the Serpent and Demon Bolt, and you do have the Draugr Necromancer, but that's your only black card currently. I guess Feed is better, like, the best removal in black at common, but I think I'd rather take the Demon Bolt, but then you also don't have any other actual red cards. You're splashing the colors, but you don't have any cards mm -hmm. of those colors, so... I think I would want to just take the Icebind Pillar and speculate on maybe wheeling one of those. You know, I, it's pack three, so it's unlikely you'll you'll really ever see any of those removal spells come back. But mm, yeah. I think I'd rather just take the Pillar and assume that's my removal. It's totally possible that one of these Snowlands wheels, too. Uh, at, at this point, I, had pretty, I was pretty confident that I was the only Snow player or uh, the only snow player prioritizing taking snow lands so i would expect one of those to come back uh and i, I think you're right. i think the icebind pillar is the pick here this deck is soft of flyers uh there's right now currently uh no great removal i only have the one struggle 
And even that is a little dorky because a lot of my creatures are smaller. Stuff like Sculptor of Winter and Avalanche Caller. These aren't, you know, your, your, your big beaters. You really want to be putting that on like your three, four, five, six drops, not necessarily your two drops. Uh, I do have a Horizon Seeker already, uh, which will make splashing easier if I wanted to do this. But I already have seven Snowlands. So I do think the Icebind Pillar would be the second pick here. Just really sad to see that uh, that path to the World Tree go. And uh, I mean, what, what, <laughs> what could realistically happen here is that I wheel multiple things that I'm still stuck on. Um, That's true. Yeah, there are a lot of options in this pack. Like you really wouldn't be, even the off-color cards, you wouldn't be upset about them wheeling because more removals is just fine in these decks that want to go long. Mm -hmm. Now, I did actually end up wheeling the Path of the World Tree and the Replicating Ring, and I believe the Snow-Covered Mountain, and I took the Path in this pack. That would have been what I did as well, yeah. Uh, and, and that's saying I actually took Coma. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> I, I took Coma, and this deck was, uh, believe it or not, even better than this, because in the very next pack that got past me, there was a Kaya, and you bet I just slammed that right in. <laughs> yeah, so then once you have the Kaya, you're like, okay, I'm splashing, like I'm playing these black cards because why not? At that point, like mm -hmm. you're not going to not play Kaya in your five color green deck. Yeah, this was just a an absolute pile. I posted a picture of this in the trophy decks in the Discord. This one, uh, th there was only one game that felt particularly close, uh, and it was against Red White, where they managed to uh, land a turn one Raptor and then a turn three Redain. Uh, and mm. the, these kind of evasive threats uh, and then just suited them up with a bunch of equipment. It was just a little bit too fast and a little bit too much. But even then, uh, my deck put up a pretty strong fight. Um, but, so, you know, the, the other seven wins were a lot of fun. I don't think I can top this draft. I'm just going to stop drafting Kaldheim now, I guess. There you go. Yeah, the, you heard it here first, folks. Spends them with Kaldheim. <laughs> I don't know. But the, here's the thing. A, a deck with power level like this, where I just trade off my Yorn to like untap some lands, and my opponent looks at me like, "What on earth is this guy doing? He's he's just tossing his like strong rares off like that." I would I would attack Yorn into a three-two just to untap some lands and like foretell a struggle that I would then use next turn when I ramp into my Bergstrider, fight their dude, and I have just Coma in my hand. Like it was it was just not not even great times. That's hilarious, awesome stuff. Why don't you kick us off in our Teferi Tybalt? Um, if you're new to the show, our Teferi Tybalt is our section of the show where we talk about uh, the previous week. What went well, what went poorly. Just kind of a, a little highlight uh, into Ben and I, uh, our, into our lives. So, Ben, why don't you kick us off with that? Sure. So, I got a pretty good Teferi this week. I got the first dose of the vaccine. That's awesome. I'm, Congrats. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm getting there. Uh, actually, our governor just announced that... Uh, teachers would be allowed to start getting the vaccine soon as part of the official rollout. Uh, I had some some insider information that <laughs> got me the hook up a little bit earlier. Uh, there was a, a lottery system going for a place in South Jersey, uh, and that was no, that that was uh, okay with getting into. So uh, I'll be getting the second dose in about two and a half weeks, and then two weeks after that, bye bye COVID. I'm I'm good. That's awesome. Yeah. I have to like have you over or something to uh, celebrate. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm I'm very down. Once 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 me and uh, the people in my immediate circle are all vaccinated, I'm gonna feel so much better about just life in general. Yeah. Uh, my parents are getting it too. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So it's things are looking up. Um, but you know, I keep saying that things won't really be over until I uh, well, I guess until I'm able to play in an LGS again. There you go. Yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be weird to sit down on LGS and be like, hey, I'm cracking packs next to somebody doing a pre-release again. <laughs> yeah. Whew, yeah. And funnily enough, uh, the place that I got it was at the same exact convention center where uh, Grand Prix Atlantic Cities are held. So oh, sweet. 
Yeah, so it's at the the convention center there in, in Atlantic City, and right near the entrance from the the Atlantic City Expressway. If anyone listening happens to know South Jersey, but uh, hopefully the next time I'm there, uh, it's for a Grand Prix. That would be sweet. And uh, my tibble this week, well. I played in the qualifier, as I've been doing for the past few months, uh, thanks to making Mythic. And I played Mono White, as I was very excited to do. I love a good White Weenies deck, and I was very excited to dunk on the Mono Red players, and Red Green players, and maybe the Yorian players if I was fast enough. And I did pretty well. Uh, I ran into a few bad matchups. I lost to Rogues, which I, I kind of knew would happen. That, that matchup is probably like 60-40 Rogues. Uh, and I had one kind of rough game against Sultai, which I lost. But I was I was just cruising through. I had a few great wins. And then my opponent that I'm playing, they're playing a red-green deck. And I'm like, oh, great. I love red-green. This is like almost unlosable. Uh, almost unlosable, right? Turns out they're playing white. Uh, they're playing the Showdown of the, uh, the Scalds version of the deck, which I don't think is particularly good. However, it gave them access to Archon of Absolution in the sideboard, which is a 4-mana 3-2 flying protection from white that says uh, your opponent has to pay one for each of their attacking creatures. And that just bricks my deck. So when I saw you post about this in the in the Discord, because, uh, you know, a lot of us were following you uh, through your your day on the on the qualifier, mm-hmm. when I saw you post about that, I was like, oh man, that sucks. Like obviously, protection from white in his white deck is gonna be awful. But like yeah. you know, maybe there's a chance you eke that through. I built that deck that you were playing, and I've been I played with it a couple of times. And today I was mm-hmm. playing with it and was paired up against the same showdown of the skulls Naya deck. Oh yeah. And my opponent in this, and I was playing best of three. My opponent drops the mm-hmm. first Archon of Absolution. And I was like, oh crap, they're playing the Archon. Yeah. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, I guess I can still beat them. And I had. I had a, an active, uh, let me think about this, I had an active Heliod, I had mm-hmm. two Speaker of the Heavens, that which were online and con- generating nice. me uh, generating me angels. They're so good. And I had um, uh, Daxos, who was gaining me life with every angel I was playing. Oh, oh that's, that's the dream board state. That's got to be amazing. And I also I had, at, I at one point had two, but in the beginning of this whole like event, I... I had one uh, Maul of the Skyclaves out as well. Yeah. So it was just like, I'm, I'm just beating. There's no way they're, they're going to beat me. They played the first Archon, and I was like, okay. And I was stuck on four lands, so that, that uh-huh. part is relevant too. I was like, okay, I can beat this Archon. That's fine. You know, I guess they'll like hold back some attackers, but I'll just start dumping counters on my Angels, and they won't be able to block profitably, and I'll just swing in for, with like three or four Angels at a time. Mm-hmm. And sure, they'll be able to chump one of them, but like I'll chip them down faster than they can chip me down. Then they played the second Archon. <laughs> and then they played the third Archon. Oh my and God. And then they played the fourth Archon. And I was just like, I literally can't win this game. I they had all four, four? They had all four. Well, they were doing the they did, wow. were doing the showdown of the Skulls thing. Yeah. And they had two uh, Edgewall Innkeepers out. Oh, so they're just was, drawing a million so they cards. Just drew, yeah, they drew a million cards a turn. So they mm-hmm. just dumped their hand, put counters on everything, and then eventually they just had, like, within two or three turns, they had all four of their Archons. And I was just like, okay, wow. I literally have to spend my entire turn's worth of mana to attack with <laughs> one <laughs> creature. Which gets blanked by one of their right. four Archons. Right. So they were attacking. Yeah, then they, then the other thing was they didn't have to hold the Archons back. They would just attack with three of them and leave one back. Oh, And it, yeah. so I was just like, okay, I can't beat this. Like, there's literally That's nothing wild. I can do. The, I, look... I guess we should be supportive of this clearly draft chaff card that has broken into constructed for a niche purpose 
Yeah, I'm just going to be really mad that it happened to hose my favorite deck in the format. <laughs> like, That's entirely fair. just blanks. Ugh. But And uh, along the same lines, I unfortunately did not make it in the, the Mythic 1200 this month. Uh, the first time in, I don't know, several months, probably like five or six that I haven't made it. Uh, just kind of fell out too early. There was a higher rate of play because it was for one of, for one of the uh, standard events this month. Or uh, sorry, one of the one of the limited uh, events. I think it's going to be sealed again. Actually, it will. Yeah. So, uh, and, and it was you know my birthday weekend that I <laughs> I thought about grinding and instead I just went and did some other stuff. So yeah. no regrets there. I'll, I'll be back next month. Yeah, no big deal. Hopefully uh, the limited qualifiers get more uh, more frequent and you know you didn't miss out on like your only opportunity to do that. Uh, plus, the, this is actually a good thing. This means the competition's going. Up. I'm all in true. for that. Very true. How about you? So for me, uh, I'm going to start with my Tybalt because I feel my Teferi is going to ruffle feathers um, as it already has. Maybe. But Maybe. Um, my Tybalt is that I've been dealing with some interesting sort of card trouble. Mm-hmm. Basically, Hannah and I, uh, Hannah's my wife if you're new to the show, um, Hannah and I have been in a lease. Hannah got a lease before we got married. Um, it's like a, a Kia sedan. And I have a Mustang GT. I'm a relatively passionate car guy i like cars a lot so like the car that i drive is pretty important to me um so i have the mustang but the mustang's been sitting at my dad's house because we can't afford to have two cars parked in our garage and we don't have anywhere else to park them so we have this weird dilemma where we have we own two car well we have two cars (laughs) you've got two cars to access right we have access to two cars but we can only drive one of them at a time and the mustang's a manual so it's stick shift and Hannah can't drive a stick shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a problem. So what do we do about that? I, you know, the, we were back and forth on like, okay, we're going to bring the Mustang up to North Jersey and Hannah's just not going to have a car she can drive so I can have the car that I like. Uh, and then we realized like when we travel to visit family and stuff that leaves her completely stranded because when our families don't yeah. live in a city where public trans is popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's all this back and forth. And eventually we, we decided, okay, we're not going to bring the Mustang up. But if we're not going to bring the Mustang up, we should sell it because it's literally just sitting there and losing equity. And like yeah. I can buy another nice sports car or something later. It's mm. not the end of the world if I have to get rid of it now. That said, because it's sitting at my dad's house, it's not registered and it's not insured. So I need to re-register it so I can sell it. Mm-hmm. And we're, the plan is I, I have a service who's going to buy the lease from us. So we're going to sell the lease, sell the Mustang, and then buy a Bronco, one of the new Ford Broncos, which I'm nice. super excited about. That way she can drive that she can actually drive that car and it's a car I'm excited to have and all that kind of stuff. It fits both of the things. Problem is I don't have the title to the car. It's at my dad's house. So uh-huh. in order to register the car, I have to have the title in hand. So I have my dad mail me the title with like, you <laughs> know, course. certified mail and all that kind of stuff. So it was at least remotely safe. And I have a scheduled appointment to go to the DMV to register the car. This this past yeah no I'm not even done yet. This past Friday, (laughs) February 26th, they attempted to deliver the title, but said that they were unable to access the building. I don't know what that means. I was driving around that day; it was not unaccessible. But Uh whatever, they couldn't access the building, so they were going to try to re-deliver it. Monday rolls around, no word from them at all. Uh, The tracking doesn't get updated. I don't see it in my mailbox. Nothing. Uh-huh. Tuesday morning is my appointment at the DMV. So I called the post office like right like 8:30 when they opened in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Hey, I don't know what the deal is, but I assumed you were supposed you were going to re-deliver this. It said it was going to be re-delivered. I didn't hear anything yesterday. Can I just come to the post office and pick this up before it gets on a truck to go out in the mail Makes today?" Makes sense. Yeah. And they were like, "Let me see if it's here." 
They came back. It was like a five minute wait. They come back and then they're like, hey, it's not, we don't have it at the post office. It's probably, what? probably, they said, it's probably on its way back to the sender. I'm like, okay, it's only the title <laughs> of my car. I'm not worried about this at all. They don't know where it is. So I was like, whatever, I guess I'm missing my appointment because the appointment was early in the morning. Yeah. And then the title showed up at my apartment like the, three the, hours later. Oh, so it was out for mail. It was day. out for delivery. <laughs> and they just had no idea. And it was certified mail. Like, And I was supposed to have a, I was supposed to sign for it. And that didn't uh-huh. happen. It was just but sitting it in my just, mailbox. Just... <laughs> oh, so man. now I have you to wait another three weeks. I have to wait another three weeks to go to the DMV now because that's how far out the appointments are booked. Uh-huh. Fascinating. U.S. infrastructure, really. Second to none. It's <laughs> we, incredible. I was like, what? you got to be kidding me. Most advanced country in the world. <laughs> Can't get mail. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that brings me to my Teferi. Now that I'm riled up, time to rile Ben and our <laughs> listeners up. Yeah, um, heresy. My Teferi is bordering on heretical and is probably sacrilegious, but... The newest Legends of Runeterra set is out today, and it looks phenomenal. They added a new region, which is all, like, Egyptian, like, deserty themed It's Amaket. got one of my favorite... Well, we, we did it my first. favorite <laughs> champions in it, um, in, in the form of Nasus, who's, like, this giant dog dude who, like, eats things and gets bigger. It's He's pretty awesome. Um, and I think Legends of Runeterra is a phenomenal game. It's where I get my constructed fix most of the time. Their draft, mm. their draft variation is not limit like mtg limited it's just still it's still just not the same but yeah they're constructed like the gameplay is a is amazing i, I absolutely love the game so i'm excited to get into the new set and uh probably pair that with my drafting time in the near future you know i will say at first i was a little bit suspicious of the combat and and how uh turns work I, i'm still not entirely mastered on on turns and ordering with that game because I, I did give it a try mm-hmm. for, for a while and i liked it um, I, I actually liked it a lot more once you told me to just imagine that everything has haste and vigilance. Uh, yeah. and then <laughs> I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I can, I can do that. Yeah. Basically like you don't have any lands. This is, this is a crash course to legends of Runeterra. If you haven't mm-hmm. played the game or you're not familiar with it, essentially it's a, it's a digital card game where there are no lands, but you gain a mana gem every turn and you max out at 10 mana. And then every player, both players draw a card each turn and each turn, one player has an attack token, and when they have the attack token, all their creatures have haste and vigilance, basically. And that that's that's like where the differences, the main differences in core gameplay are. Um, but it, yeah, it's absolutely phenomenal. I, I love not having to manage resources in a way that, like, coming back to lands feels really archaic. Hmm. Um, and I, I took like three or four months off of Magic last year to play exclusively Legends of Runeterra, and yeah, coming back to Magic felt very archaic, but still gotta get my draft my draft kick in you know yeah there are definitely upsides to the full digital and it's interesting to start seeing uh like magic starting to incorporate some of the same things now that arena has really just taken off some things like the ability to uh i don't know say retroactively add or remove text from a card or alter the way text is worded on a card for example the companions uh in game we know what the companion rules are now because it kind of does it for you but in paper the companions there's no patch for, for the for the Luris in my trade binder. It, it still says the old companion rule. So I don't know. There's, there's definitely upsides. And uh, I guess going against it, it does max out the number of creatures you can have on a board. Yeah. Uh, which I, I guess technically Arena does that now too. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, definitely less room I, for like your random shenanigans that magic supports. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. This is probably probably a topic for another day. But, we could um, do this as a full topic. Yeah, let, let's yeah. tell you what. Let's, let's put a pin in this, and we'll come back to it. 
Sounds good. That said, we have our listener question of the week, and this one is a little bit of of a long one. Uh, I'll read through it, and then Ben and I, I guess, will give a, a sufficient answer to it. But basically, Andy X asks, how do you personally align with the magic color pie? For example... I would suggest that I am very heavy white, maybe 70% or so, due to my borderline obsession with rules and order. However, my next biggest chunk would be black, maybe 20%. I tend to value myself above others and can default into selfishness when not thinking. The last 10%, I would give 5% of that to blue, as I've been somewhat scholarly in my life and do like to learn and plan. And 5% to red because of my hint of anger. No green for me. So this is a super interesting question. Thank you for asking this, Andy, because I don't think either of us have put that much thought into this i know we've both talked about it in the past but Mm -hmm. i i like seeing your percentage breakdowns there andy that was that was decent yeah that's good and notably this is at first when i saw this question i was like oh well i mean i like playing green the best and then i like doing this other stuff and then i was like wait a minute that's not exactly what this question is this question is how is our personality aligned with the pie not our color preferences not how our gameplay aligns with colors but us like as people this is much more interesting agreed so I would say that green is actually still my main color. I think that one is still aligned. Uh, I like nature. Uh, I have, I think I'd say a very growth oriented mindset. Really enough, I spent a lot of my time at the beach, uh, which I guess you could argue is a bit more blue, but I think because I was more going for the natural aspect of it, um, I'm a big surfer, that kind of thing. I like just laying back and enjoying the sun. I think that would fall more under the green uh, the green side of thing, despite there being a lot of water. Uh, and I would probably say blue does come next, given that I'm a teacher and a physicist and I value discovery and knowledge and learning. Uh, probably white, red, and black after that, as I, I can be kind of orderly. Uh, I, I tend to run a type ship, a little bit chaotic from time to time. Uh, whenever I have a decision, I love a good coin flip. And uh, probably not that much black. I don't think I make too many hedonistic sacrifices <laughs> here and there. Uh, but I, I will say this is extremely different from my play style, which I would say probably is uh, green, white, black, red, blue. How about you? Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, it, it's funny, actually, while I was... One of the things I was looking for when listening to your explanation of this was, or I guess one of the things I was doing was comparing it to the card you designed of yourself. Ah, uh, yeah. If you, if you yeah. don't know, listener, Ben, for, I don't remember if it was a birthday or Christmas or something, but for- It was your some, wedding. Oh, it was my wedding. That's right. Yep. So for my wedding gift, Ben designed two cards, one uh, for each of us, and they're like partners and planeswalkers. It was a really, really cool- uh, really cool present but they're like us each of us in card form and like adapted to fit the magic ethos mm-hmm. um and ben's was a creature that was black green and i think it's interesting because i think your description like your verbal description there is is accurate of yourself um i i wouldn't necessarily say and i don't spend like every waking moment with you or anything but i wouldn't say that black really fits your personal color pie very much mm-hmm. yeah um but it's interesting that your your card is black green because obviously black green good stuff is like your favorite archetype. Of course, of course. That said, the card you designed for me was Jeskai, blue, white, red, and I think that actually fits my personality perfectly. Yeah. I am, <laughs> I, the thing that I don't know though is from a percentage standpoint, am I more white or more blue? Because I'm very like to the letter. If the rules are this, we shouldn't go against them. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a small chaotic side of me that's like, well, this rule is stupid, so we should go against <laughs> it. But I would, I'd probably say you're 
Oh man, that's really tough. Right? I, I, it's I'm probably sure. pretty even. Yeah, I th- I would think it's probably if it's not perfectly fifty fifty on the blue white split, it's probably like fifty one or fifty two percent one or the other. Yeah, like it's, it's definitely it's within like five percent swing. Yeah, but definitely blue white. It's probably like blue white are almost like almost exactly the same in capacity for me, and then slightly like quite a bit lower, I guess, than that is red. And then I would say green and then black. Black's probably my least as well. I'd be curious, that, though. That out. I would be curious, though, um, to hear from the listener on this. Do you think that our assessment of ourselves was accurate based on what we've talked about on the show and how well you know us through just listening to the podcast? Uh-huh. Also, let us know I, your own. That, that would be cool. Yeah, I want to hear some some other uh, kind of evaluations like this. And I, I will say on the topic of um, the, the card design, I was really proud in that that synergy there. If I remember correctly, uh, whenever a card, for, for, for my creature, the one designed after me, the text was, whenever a card leaves your graveyard, put a plus one, plus one counter on him. And then yours was some, it, it was some nonsense. It was like kind of broken, but not really. I think it was like discard a card of CMC X. You can play a card of, with CMC. Oh, there it is. You got him. Hold on. Just read yeah, it. <laughs> I got them both right here. So uh, both of them use our, our online persona screen names at the time. So Ben's was Bainin Resolute Tracker. Two black green for a legendary creature, human warrior. Whenever Bainin attacks, target player mm. puts the top three cards of their library into their graveyard. So kind of the um, the delirium sort of enabler type type thing. Oh, I love me a, a tireless tracker slash grim flare. Although the text on this is outdated too, because now you can just use the milk the word mill so oh shoot I <laughs> you can just um, cross it off whenever a card leaves a graveyard put a plus one plus one counter on Bainin, and then it has partner trample and menace and it's a three four what about a three four with upside pretty solid yeah yeah then but you then have, it's energy then you well then you have rannick supreme archmage this is red white blue for a two four legendary creature human wizard get ready there's a lot of text on this one discard a card with converted mana cost x you may cast another target instant or sorcery with converted mana cost X or less from your graveyard until end of turn. So basically discard a card, give a card of equal value flashback. Mm-hmm. If you control Bainin and he has five or more plus one plus one counters on him, exile Rannick and Bainin and return them to the battlefield transformed. And then Rannick also has partner and flying. But then when they return to the battlefield transformed, <laughs> this, is, it is, this is where it gets really good. This is, and this was like the super clever part of the of the whole thing it's a um uh, what did they call the meld was the mechanic yeah this is the fourth meld <laughs> magic yeah. only has like the three of them right yeah have so, a fourth. so it's a meld card so the the two of them they transform melded together as one card called nerds unbound by reason <laughs> it's a planeswalker <laughs> and it, it has four loyalty when it etbs and then it has a plus two Target player creates an omniscience, ghostly prison, or glorious anthem token, <laughs> which is just like a just a free omniscience, and it's just on the like. Sure, why not? But look, but look, you, you don't you might not necessarily want that. You could also get a ghostly prison to stop yeah, the attacks, or an anthem to buff your board. It's perfect. It's versatile. It's versatile. It's just incredibly inexpensive for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and actually, you're you're ticking up to get it, so, you know. And you you do have to there. go through a significant amount of work to get here. Although, of course, as you are casting stuff from your graveyard, uh, like, with uh, your card, my card is getting counters. True, yeah. So, the synergy, it works. You can it flip this there. thing. And then, uh, there's a plus one ability, which says, choose a non-magic card item Sorry, choose a non-magic card <laughs> item owned by another player. That player oh, may man. sacrifice that item 
if they do not draw three cards. <laughs> and then and then there's 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 helper oh, text. They're gonna, they're gonna un- oh yeah yeah okay. There's helper text that says items can include dice, tokens, shoes, dot dot dot. <laughs> so so the joke here is you you say, you look at your opponent and you say hey that's a nice watch sacrifice that or I draw and then, then they go what does that mean and then you go I don't know throw it in the trash. <laughs> Yeah, so you just want to, like, that's that feels very black to me, making your opponent, like, you know, like, forcing them into this, like, game of, uh, I don't know, blackmail or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a minus eight, which is the ultimate for this this Planeswalker. You may choose a deck you own from outside the game and put it into your hand. <laughs> <laughs> if you've made an omniscience token by this time, you should be able to figure it out from there. So I think that's actually a, a great summarization of, of who we are as our color pies, uh, I guess, as people and in the, the physical cards that we made. And I think it's also a great transition into our main topic today, which is <laughs> flavor. Tangent. Yeah. So this week we are, as as we mentioned, we're talking about Kaldheim uh, as a plane and also the set as it pertains to flavor and lore. Um, so we're going to dive a little bit into the story of Kaldheim. We're not going to spoil much. Eh, there probably will be some spoilers. So if you're worried about the spoilers from from reading the story, go read the story and then come back and, and finish this episode. But we're going to be talking about some of the story points and then some of the different things that we got out of the story, the things that we really appreciated or disliked from it, and then a number of cards that really tickled our fancies. Mm -hmm. So I guess to start things off, this wasn't the best story (laughs) in Magic's history. Magic has had some downright awesome content, especially in the free stories that they put online. I think some of my all-time favorite were from Shadows Over Innistrad. uh, Shadows was one of their highlights, yeah. We had a series of like good ones and then really bad ones. And then Mm -hmm. they announced they were like revamping the whole thing, and then the first books they put out were pretty awful. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of... Yeah, there was a lot of nonsense with that. We we probably don't want to get too much into the uh, all the controversy surrounding the, the novels that came out, which did a bunch of like weird uh, like rewriting of the history of the characters and overwriting subtext that people have been hoping for. It, that that was a mess. But let's stick to this, I guess. Um, essentially, with this story, Tybalt shows up on call time. Kaya is sent for a, a different reason. Uh, she's been paid to hunt down a threat. Uh, she happens to bump into Tybalt. And she's like, oh, man, this guy's just going to cause chaos. I guess I got to stop this so I can, you know, keep hunting my, my threat down, who the threat apparently turns out to be Vorinclex. People probably noticed that there was one Phyrexian hanging out on this plane, which is a little weird. More on that in a bit. Uh, Kaya meets some friends along the way. Nico and Tyvar, these other planeswalkers. Nico starts off doing their own thing. Uh, they have a bit of a side arc where they're kind of discovering themselves. They come from Theros, actually, which is a mm-hmm. pretty cool, a pretty cool little aside. Um and they, they kind of like traipse around the wilderness for a while, just getting up to nonsense. Uh, Tyvar is uh, an elf, I think brother of the king or, or like son of the king. It was something like that. Uh, who's just a, an absolute like ham, just the definition of a ham. I like Tyvar a lot. Uh, he wants all the glory, but also can share it with other people. A, a pretty cool take on a green planeswalker. Different than just the, you know, Nissa loves lands. <laughs> um so it kind of runs around doing stuff with them. Tybalt tries to smash all these separate little sections of call time together. Uh, almost like they call them realms. Kind of a microcosm of the planes where you have all these different realms uh, and they're all kind of floating around in this cosmic soup, um, which has monsters in the middle of it, uh, which, you know, uh, such include Coma and uh, Sarulf. So anyway, uh, Tybalt 
smashes them all together, especially the demon-filled one. He wants to unleash the demons on uh, Bredegard, this human-filled area. And the gods show up. They start getting a little annoyed that Tybalt's doing this. And thanks to Kaya and Nico and Tyvar, they manage to save the day. Well, um, it's not exactly revolutionary <laughs> in terms of plot. Yeah, I was a little disappointed with it in that respect. I think they had the ability to do some really creative stuff. And they kind of did, which you hinted at with the Phyrexian stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I'll get into that in a moment. But yeah. they had the I feel like they had the ability to do a lot more with this than they did. And, you know, maybe some of Tybalt's shenanigans will, like, actually matter down the road in, like, the greater lore of things. But I think probably the Phyrexian side of things is what's going to actually matter more. Yeah. So it feels kind of weird that they were like, hey, let's do something with this Planeswalker nobody's talked about in ages. And then they kind of didn't do anything with him. (laughs) Yeah. Now, this set, as we all know, is very dense from a a gameplay perspective. It's already very dense from a flavor perspective, too. So something I noticed is that there's, I think, like 10... There there was a a whole bunch of different realms within uh, Kaldheim. And then, like, on those realms, there's different factions within those realms. So I think there were 10 realms. Each of them kind of have, like, like one's the giant's realm, one's the human's realm, one's the zombies, uh, Narfi and whatnot. And then on those realms, you've got like five different human factions, and then there's different types of angels, and then some giants are, are blue and some are red, and it was a lot while reading. Uh, something in teaching that we often talk about is the zone of proximal development, which is uh, what you can reasonably expect someone to learn given what they already know. And if you overload someone's zone of proximal development with just too much stuff, they often will shut down. Uh, It's like that feeling you get when uh, the pacing in a movie is just going too fast. Or if someone's talking at you and they're throwing out all these words that you don't know and you're like, this is, I I just don't care. (laughs) So I found that it was off the charts here. There were so many factions and so many names at some point. I just had to like step back and go, what what does this sentence even mean? Like, are, how many of these words are real English words? <laughs> like, what what's going on here? Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it too. I think, I think that happened with the actual cards' designs too. They mm-hmm. like every card in this set has a wall of text on it. Yeah, and it's it's a little much, honestly. You you sit down and you're like expecting some of these, you know consistent things that we see and we've talked about a few times where there are these uh, archetypal cards that you can expect to see from set to set and we got those but they all have extra things on them Mm -hmm. and it's so there's still all this extra stuff you have to learn it it makes it much harder to pick this set up compared to another um, like Zendikar Rising for instance and from a story perspective I think that suffered that way as well yeah they bit off a little more than they could chew here and i think i'm okay with that like i would rather have magic try a little bit too hard every once in a while than a little bit not enough yeah so I like think it, i'm okay i think it okay hurts it. it hurts the introduction of new like i think this whole sort of development is is great for pre-existing planes and building mm-hmm. on on the lore we have for pre-existing planes but trying to introduce a new plane in one set I think is really hard and I think I see I saw a lot of people at the beginning of this format actually start saying like why why can't we go back to two set blocks mm. or like I and I I think from a draft perspective I think I like the one set limited environment I did I would prefer yeah. to have single set limited environments but at the beginning of this when they at the beginning of this whole thing where they started um you know doing the one set blocks they had a few sets where they still ran like the same plane a few times in a row like mm-hmm. they did with um uh, guilds of ravnica and then 
Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. War of the Spark and all that kind of stuff. So I wish they did that with Kaldheim. I think I wish we got two sets out of this because I think it would have felt a lot better, a lot more more digestible if mm-hmm. we had this spread over two sets as opposed to, to one set. But overall, I really like it, and I think I think it was a great idea, and they they did well in a lot of areas, but I think some of the execution was off. Yeah. Every time I think about this story as a whole and, and what kind of happened here, I, I just think back to Shadows Over Innistrad, which had a single standalone story about a, a fantastic card, the Gitrog Monster, which was so good and so well-written that I still think about it today. I read this like four or five years ago, right? Is when it came out. Mm-hmm. I, I still jokingly refer to my mom's pet frog as the Gitrog Monster because it kind of looks like it. That's uh, but as for this one, I think the uh, the cards and story could have been a bit more connected. So something that I want to bring attention to is the sagas, which are these fantastic cards. Sagas are probably the coolest card design we've seen in a really long time in this game. They're what Planeswalkers should have been. Yeah, yeah. And the introduction of sagas in Dominaria was awesome uh, because the sagas referred to uh, events in the history of magic. Um, th- these, these big... Uh, Things that occasionally had whole blocks based around them, yeah. like uh, the t- time of ice, right? Uh, the fall of the Thran. Like these are these are significant things that really appealed to like players that had been here for a while because well they remembered these things and it was like wow this card represents the history of magic. This is awesome. Then let's fast forward to Theros where we had sagas come back and the sagas here we're not referring to uh, necessarily old things in the history of Theros. Some were, but. A lot of them were tied into the present lore. Kiora Best the Sea God, for example. You can pull up Magic Story and read the Magic Story where Kiora bests the Sea God, right? Yeah. Um, it's directly tied from gameplay to the, the lore, to the story, which I loved. I thought it was sweet. Um, again, not all of them. Some of them were, uh, you know, just kind of throwaways. But for the most part, they were directly bound to the story. Now, if we jump ahead to Kaldheim, they're kind of disjointed. So the way the Kaldheim story worked, the pacing was very fast. It went from one thing to the other, and it did not linger to touch upon all these things. Uh, it didn't really linger upon like uh, the Battle of, of uh, Ice and Fire, or Frost and Fire, whatever it is. I keep saying mm-hmm. the, the Game of Thrones book instead. But uh, for example, that's just not really mentioned. Invasion of the Giants, it's not really mentioned. And it makes it unclear whether these sagas are things that took place in the history of Kaldheim, or if they're taking place currently in Kaldheim, and the story is just jumping too quickly to settle and address them. So are the giants invading as Tybalt's doing the Doomscar, smashing the planes together, or uh, is this something else? Uh, It was really hard to say. Is this from the past? Is this from now? Are we just skipping past it? Uh, And I I didn't really like that. Yeah, that's a great point. It's really awkward and it just feels i think disjoint was the word to use that's a a perfect word to use there it's it makes Mm -hmm. everything feel like it doesn't mesh and i think that's another reason why they should have split this over two sets because they would have had the time to actually explain all of these things and uh do it justice right because yeah part of the the biggest allure of the first sagas from a lore perspective or a flavor perspective was that they did tell these epic stories that people already knew about so you didn't have to do a ton of explanation about them in the actual dominaria story people already knew the story behind them theros you didn't have that so they tied it into the story and it worked and here they're like trying to tell too many storylines all at once Mm -hmm. without actually having enough words to do so and and i think yeah that that hurt now, like you mentioned, I think there was one storyline that was my favorite that I liked a lot, which was Vorinclex. So yeah. this was interesting. Uh, we saw Vorinclex in the very beginning. Apparently, it's who Kai was 
paid to hunt down and kill. We don't know exactly what Vorinclex was doing, but again, this is spoilers if you still happen to be listening. Uh, we saw at the very end of Magic's story that Asika, God of the World Tree, gets kind of beat up by Vorinclex, and as she lays there on the ground of the Tyrant Sanctum dying, she happens to see Vorinclex scooping up some of that uh, that elixir of immortality, uh, the Cosmos elixir, which she had you know been harvesting from the World Tree. He grabs a little scoop of that, talks to a Phyrexian on another plane somehow, and then poofs away. So, we assume another Phyrexian. We don't actually know who he was talking to, but he says yeah, okay, okay. He, he scoops up because this is we. I just re- reread over this, but he scoops up the elixir. He says, "Sample acquired. I'm ready to return." And then he some some sort of like red weird. The way they described it was something that was unique. We we aren't. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the uh, the planar bridge in some capacity. Mm, yeah, but. He, some portal opens, he steps through it, and then he hears, uh, Essica actually hears on the other side of it, some female voice say something along the lines of, perfect, you know, you did your job, we're one step closer to perfection. Mm-hmm. And so, this this whole thing with the Phyrexians is is very intriguing to me. The Phyrexians are one of my favorite factions in Magic. Um, I know Ben has been more, I'll say engrossed, but he hates them, <laughs> with, the, with the Eldrazi. Yeah. Just because yeah. of the Shadows lore and you know bruna and your the angels that you love and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. i've always been very 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 involved with the phyrexians i really like the story behind the phyrexians and like what they represent because we know very little about them but when we saw vorinclex spoiled i sent a, an image to ben and we were both just like this can't be real right they're just gonna throw like a <laughs> random phyrexian card in the middle of the set about vikings What's going on? Like, it can't be real. And then it was, which I kudos to the design team for throwing in this one card that they probably leaked themselves. It's it's to, really sweet. Like, yeah. I, you know, it was, it was really cool. The question is, A, how did Vorinclex get to Kaldheim? We don't exactly know that. B, who was he talking to? I have theories. Um, my guess mm-hmm. is it was probably Elish Norn, but unclear at this point who he was talking to. And... Um, what do they actually want with the Cosmos Elixir? Do they just want to make themselves immortal? Or, you know, that's what it kind of sounds like. They're saying they're closer to yeah. perfection and all that. But um, it's just wild. And and one of the things that we've seen the Phyrexians do in the past is completely take over the planes that they they get to. And if you're not familiar with the story of the Phyrexians, basically they were created by Yogmoth to essentially cure the Thran from this disease it had called the Phthesis. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's spelled very weirdly. <laughs> Good enough. Um but they were created to to cure this thing, uh, the Thran. And then they kind of like, there was a big war and the actual history there is a little muddied. They get kind of defeated in one way or another. And from that we get Karn. And he was created using uh, one of the like completion um, mind. I, I can't remember the actual word they use for it. but G- Genome maybe? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah, he was created basically from the tech that created the the phyrexians in the first place mm-hmm. and he has this oil on him that they call it's called the glistening oil that that is on him and he's more or less unaware of it he planeswalks to mirrodin and leaves it behind on mirrodin accidentally and it's held by memnark which is a legend on on mirrodin memnark eventually dies and when memnark dies the oil itself spreads as like a fungus throughout all of mirrodin and the phyrexians are given birth to again basically and they they are able to rise back up and that's where we see all of the grit like the actual praetors we see now elish norn jinga taxis Vorinclex, you know all of these uh all of these big big phyrexian monsters that we've come to know 
Mm-hmm. And so what they're the Phyrexians, they're all obsessed with perfection and and this thing they call completion, which is spelled with an A for some reason. <laughs> I guess course. just to be different. But they essentially want to rid the multiverse of imperfections. And that's kind of what they do. They take over planes. And I mean we've only ever seen them do it to Mirrodin, I guess, and like they started to do it with Dominaria. But it's very, very intriguing because this happened in the scar in the Mirrodin Scars of Mirrodin block, which led into New Phyrexia, and then we haven't heard anything of them since. Except there was one card that was pla- planted in Modern Horizons, which was called Fountain of Icker. And Icker was what was the stuff that was left, that, that like fungal oil stuff on Mirrodin. And it's like this black, almost tar-like substance that we've seen in art. And the Fountain of Icker card showcases Icker on Ixalan. Yeah. And so the question is, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> there was yeah. when we left Ixalan, there was no mention of Phyrexians being there. So did they somehow get there after, you know, all the stuff with, with Nicol Bolas and you know, now that's their like home ground and they're just chilling, setting up some random nonsense there. I, who knows? Maybe. Uh, m- maybe this card is just a poor attempt at a a flavor reference to like how the, how dinosaurs became like oil, which uh, isn't entirely true. It was more like like fungus and <laughs> plants and stuff. But may- maybe this is just like a crude, huh, get it? Crude, oh, a crude reference. Well, to the if fact that's that, the case, like, though, the flavor text doesn't help because the flavor text leans toward it being something more sinister than that. Because the flavor text for the card Fountain of Icar says, yeah. "Sun Empire priests thought they were digging a well. What they tapped in, what they tapped was something different entirely." Yeah, and we have known uh, magic to uh, leave little hints uh, in the in the, the flavor text of you know often forgotten cards. For example, the clue tokens referencing that the uh, the Eldrazi Titans will be coming back, and that well, the, the two of them are already back. That Emrakul will be coming back on Innistrad. Yeah. So I don't know. It's possible. Uh, this card has been kind of forgotten for a while, but maybe they'll come back on Ixalan. I have a feeling we're going to see a Phyrexian theme set sometime in the future. Uh, maybe within the next two years or so. Potentially on Ixalan. Yeah, my curiosity is, are they going to somehow start spoiling? I guess it really depends on who's involved with Vorinclex, like what what that looks like or what that, that a partnership looks like. If it's mm-hmm. just Vorinclex with one other, one other entity, maybe we won't see what I'm about to postulate. But my thought is, what if, what if we're about to see a single um, Phyrexian reference per set until we get yeah. a Phyrexian set? Like, that next, would be awesome. Strixhaven, we see Jin Kataxis or something, and then you know, it moves on from there and we get to see one thing and they're collecting all these different MacGuffins and eventually, you know, we have the big eruption of the Phyrexians re-emerging onto some plane that was long mm-hmm. forgotten or something. I think that'd be sweet. It's I'd like when you see, it. uh, it's it's like seeing the end credit scene in a Marvel movie and you see exactly. Thanos for two seconds and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> he's he's coming still? And then uh, you're like, oh man. So I, I would I would love to see something like that. Uh, if they have the, the guts to do it, I'm in. They've so okay. I'm gonna I'm getting into tinfoil hat territory here. Yeah, uh, and then and then we'll move on to some of our favorite cards and stuff from Kaldheim. But hear me out. We've seen Phyrexians. We've seen Eldrazi. We've seen Eldrazi again. Now we're starting to see Phyrexians again. Don't we've never don't seen them it. interact with each other. Oh no. And we have seen for sure that it's hinted Emrakul is not trapped in some capacity. Yeah. Emrakul was responsible for getting herself put in the moon. By Tamiya. That's right. Yeah. So that was a plan. That was not an accident. 
I wonder hmm. if they're somehow either working together or we're going to see the two of them collide and we're going to get like a Phyrexians versus Eldrazi set or something. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> I would love it. What do, what do Phyrexian Eldrazi look like? That would be wild. Oh, man. I mean, they're already pretty perfect, uh, given that they're like pure nothingness. They're they're devoid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that'll be sweet. I'm really excited for whatever's happening with the Phyrexians. I really hope it's not something they just drop for the next two years and then like suddenly, yeah. like, hey, remember when Vorinclex was on Kaldheim? <laughs> that would suck. I really hope they keep up these threads throughout the next mm. few sets. So let's bring it back to Kaldheim. Of course, we have our problems, but I think one of the reasons that Kaldheim got bogged down a bit story-wise was because they tried tackling this entire Norse mythos at once. Uh, with Theros, they had a few sets to do it. Uh, now they kind of just went all in on on Norse mythology, and honestly, they they did do a lot right. So let's uh, let's jump into our flavor town, which, as you all listening know, is your destination for all things uh, fun in, in form and function. So Kaldheim, it's kind of this winter wonderland of a plane, and we wanted to take some time to really appreciate the art, the flavor text, the design of some of our favorite cards in the set, and of course, we also want to talk about them in context of limited because limited podcast, and we can update what our thoughts are on these cards so far now that we've all gotten to try them out of it. So. I've noticed that lore in the set is more referential top-down designs, uh, often based on specific Norse myths. But sometimes uh, there's you know some notable exceptions. And uh, again, I overall just found the flavor in the set to be a bit weaker this time around. There's not as many cards that made me go like, ooh, that's pretty sweet. Like, I get it. I get what they were going for. Uh, because I think they were a little bit over-reliant on their source material. It's like, all right, we get it. That one's Thor. Like, that one's Odin. Like, it's not really, uh, it's not really asking a lot of you to figure out, right? Um, and then again, just a huge number of other things in the lore, the 10 uh, realms and the five tribes and all the different names. And then j just compared to 10 guilds, it was just a lot this time. But uh, we, we did each pick five cards that we wanted to highlight. Now, I do want to start with a dishonorable mention. Uh, I'm going to start with Kaya's Onslaught because the action shown in the art of Kaya's Onslaught does not happen in the story. So in the art, we see Kaya and Vorinclex fighting in front of what is clearly the Tyrite Sanctum. Uh, this actually doesn't happen. Kaya fights Vorinclex in some cave, and Alrund is there. Uh, she never meets him again in the story. Vorinclex, like we mentioned, does go and hang out with uh, Asika in the World Tree in the, the Tyrite Sanctum for a little bit. So this makes me wonder, was this art commissioned before the story was done? Did they make some changes and then forget, or just consciously omit? Whatever. <laughs> Yeah, that kind of stuff irks me though. I really don't like when they do that, and it's like whatever. It like you said, it is. It really is like super minimal. But it, but like it, I will never not see that. It would have been so easy to just not put the Tyrite Sanctum in the background, right? Right. Because yeah. you could easily have Kaya just stabbing Vorinclex a bunch and be like, "Oh, that was from the beginning of the of the plot." I don't know what was happening there, but why don't you kick us off with our uh, our first uh, card we want to take a look at? Yeah, so speaking of things that I'll never get over with this set, my first one, the first flavor, this is actually a flavor fail and probably should have been a dishonorable mention as well, <laughs> is the world tree. How do you make the world tree not a legendary? Like, I don't, it doesn't, there's only one of them. It's called the world tree. <laughs> like, it's named, and it's not a legend. I don't, I don't it's, suppo it's supposed to be Yggdrasil. Like, how, how do you not yeah. make that a legend? We've really moved away from legendary lands, haven't we? Yeah, I guess so. That, yeah, that's true, actually. We haven't had, like, actual legendary lands in quite some time. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, would Field of the Dead have been fine if it was legendary? It may have been. I don't know. Oh. I don't know that it actually would have been, but it may have been. Interesting. Just just food for thought. Uh, yeah, the World Tree, uh, it, 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 it's it's right down the middle for me. It, it's kind of like the vector sum of, of two very large vectors in opposite directions. Awesome. It's the World Tree card. It taps for any mana of any color. 
it's great. Once it grows big enough, six lands, you can do whatever you want, which is then balanced in the opposite direction by <laughs> the fact that it's not yeah, a legend. It's like you, you can do whatever you want, but you should only be able to do it the one time and, you know, like, or, you know, how whatever. Like, you shouldn't be able to have multiple resources of this. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Like, I don't actually think it's game breaking or anything. From a gameplay perspective, I think it's fine. But it, the lore is just, it, uh, it just bothers me so much. I'll never not see that. And it will never not bother me. Well, speaking of the world tree, my first card is Toski Bearer of Secrets. So this little guy runs along the world tree, uh, apparently delivering messages and spying for a Sika, RIP, who is in charge of, you know, the world tree. And this guy is modeled after, uh, I, I might butcher this name, but Ratatosker? Is that how you say it? That sounds about right. I don't speak Norse, but that sounds, <laughs> sounds close. Uh, I'm 116th Scandinavian, so I'm just going to say that this is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's fine. Uh and Ratatoskr is the, the mythical Norse squirrel that ran along Yggdrasil. So this is a top-down design. Uh, what would a magical, evasive, sneaky, informant squirrel look like? Uh, it would be small, a 1-1. Impossible to kill, indestructible and uncounterable. And you would gain information if you send him out looking. So whenever he attacks, which he's forced to do, which I guess makes sense. Squirrels are always moving, right? Uh, you draw a card. And this card is amazing. Uh, I've loved playing it limited every single time. It's extremely difficult to beat if you are playing something like uh, Red White and they stabilize. This thing, the fact that it blocks and it's an indestructible blocker for a turn is one of the best card- things about this card. Like, it just blanks a huge attack and then it's just going to start beating in. And if you ever put an equipment on this thing, well, oh, yeah. uh, have fun. Yeah, one thing that I, I didn't give Toski enough credit when we did our first like initial format breakdown, I originally thought that Toski only triggered when he he or i don't actually know the gender of the squirrel it itself (laughs) attacked and hit the player but it's actually any creature you control Mm -hmm. so toski doesn't need to get through which sends it through the roof in in value compared to where i had it i I thought it was way worse than it is and it's not whenever one or more deals damage it's whenever so if you've built out a wide board and you have like honestly it's to the point where if i have a bunch of smaller creatures and i drop a toski and they have one big blocker I'll just like trade one of my, I'll trade like a two, two for three cards, right? <laughs> like yeah, yeah, exactly. that's pretty good. So for me, the next ones are the gods. It's not obviously not an individual card, but a lot of the gods, I was pretty happy with their designs. I think it was really cool. One of the, one of my favorite things to see in sets that involve mythology in some way, shape or form. We saw it in Amonkhet. We saw it in Theros. Now we're seeing it in Kaldheim. I really appreciate the way that they go with these top-down designs based on the gods in that particular set of mythology. But I also mm. like every single set of them have been unique, right? You know yeah. you yeah. know the Theros gods because they're indestructible. And you know the uh, the Amonkhet gods because they have this weird returns from the graveyard thing. These have, they have MDFC and they're also not indestructible, which I think is great because from, and I've talked about it on the show before, but like from a Norse mythology perspective, they weren't gods so to speak they were they were aliens basically right mm-hmm. they, they were people who who were just well above the capabilities of humans so i really like that like they can kill each other it's difficult for you know humans to kill them or whatever but they can kill each mm-hmm. other and um not giving them indestructible is nice and then obviously giving them the mdfc treatment makes them unique in their own right and also kind of cheats in a little extra design space for some of the artifacts which are are also well known in norse mythology for my next one, I've got Craven Hulk. It's a giant coward. That's it. That's all. <laughs> that's all I gotta say. The the flavor text uh, suggests that this giant was raised by goats and it grew up to be the most timid member of the herd, which is just 
really funny. Uh, this art has been described as confusing by some people. So to make it clear, the giant is like hiding behind the mountain and kind of peeking out from behind the mountain the goat is standing on. There's actually a good, uh, someone like edited over it in paint. I'll, I'll post that in the meme channel if I remember uh, so that you can clearly see it. Its fingers are like curling over the mountain, but the giant looks a lot like the mountain. So it's kind of hard to see. Uh, but funnily enough, uh, they get better in multiples. So <laughs> once once they're around, uh, the other ones around, you can start, you know, attacking and blocking them more effectively. Uh, also, funnily enough, they work really well at zero one goat tokens, which you can't make in the set. But, uh, you know, you can toss a goat in there to block with it. And uh, overall, I've been pretty happy with this card. It pairs really well with Axe Guard Cavalry. If you Axe Guard Cavalry and then play a solid three drop, solid uh, four drop in Giant uh, uh, Craven Hulk, that's a real threat. A uh, four mana four four haste is a big beater, and you're gonna just beat up on anyone that's trying to take more time to dirtle. That's true. One thing, obviously, the like cowards can't block thing, not, <laughs> yeah, not new. But one thing that this card got me thinking about this set was when it says block alone, and I, I think I know the answer to this. But when it says block alone, does it mean it has to block? It has to have another creature blocking the same creature, or could it two things be blocking separate creatures but still count as you know blocking together? Pretty sure that it, it uh, the second case. Uh, yeah, although that's what I thought. I, I actually, I don't know if I've ever had that come up, weirdly enough. Um, I'm pretty sure it can, 99% sure it means that this and another creature can block two different things. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. Because it's not just Correct black. us if we're yeah, wrong yeah. In, the, in the Discord, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. My next set of cards, again, I picked a, a set of cards, uh, are the Sagas. I thought they, outside of the fact that some of them didn't carry over to the actual written story, I thought they did a phenomenal job with representing how people from this plane would have recorded their history mm, doing yeah. the the tattoos was awesome a lot of the art is like drawn in out in tattoos thought that was phenomenal very creative but also very fitting and the wood carvings were just a step beyond like they weren't i don't know if if the listener knows this but a lot of the arts that involve the wood carvings are literal wood carvings that they took <laughs> they're pictures, pictures. that's awesome like, they're not paintings of wood carvings they are actual wood carvings that they took pictures of. So I think that's really cool. They obviously had to step outside the box for the artists for those. I doubt they were able to tap the same, the exact same artists um, unless they did it with like laser engravings or something. But you know what I mean? So I, I just thought it was phenomenal and it really added the whole Viking aspect to to that um, that side of, of the set. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about open up new design space. Like on one hand, I know there's a good number of people that could play Magic, and they wouldn't care if there were like no pictures or, or names on these cards at all. It could be called like Card One, Card Two, and have like a I don't know a, a picture of a soup bowl or something on the on the card, and they wouldn't really care what it had on it. But I don't know. I think one of the reasons Magic has its has such long term appeal is because of this awesome flavor. Like the way you can introduce someone to the game by being like, "You like zombies? Well, have I got the deck for you?" So I, I think that opening up that I guess literal design space for people to design new designs in space is is nice. going to be pretty cool. I, I'm excited to see uh, what else we can get from this. Like, are we going to have cards where there's just pictures on them at some point in the future? Like pictures of non-created art, maybe just like a picture of a beautiful forest on a forest card. I, I'm not well, opposed like a to that. You mean? Yeah. Yeah, we we could see it. Um, I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah, they might do, or will they do like sculptures in the future, or like you mm. know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I, I'm not sure if this was just a um, uh, publicity stunt, but, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. 
My next card is the Path of the World Tree. So uh, this path is much easier to walk than we had first anticipated. Uh, this card's great. It's easy to activate, and when you activate it, it feels amazing. Uh, it's a solid, you know, mid-pack one pickup to cement yourself in the snow if you've picked up a few snowlands before. Uh, although, one thing I've noticed, be careful, uh, always check and see if the snowland is missing from the pack that has the Path of the World Tree in it. Because, you know, if someone took that land, then you're probably better off not taking the path. They're probably hoping to wheel it, and you're going to get cut. So... Here's something. The lore seems to suggest that this path is a path to the world tree. Like, in the world, this would lead you to the world tree. It has some spirits on it. But does this relate to the Bifrost equivalent, which is the, the prismatic bridge that's the backside of Asika? Like, it, this isn't the prismatic bridge, right? I don't think so. I would think the prismatic bridge is what joins the realms. Mm-hmm. So We never actually is... saw it used in the lore. Wow. Yeah, that's so, true. Hard they, to say. They kind of missed the beat there, I think. But I would think that the the prismatic bridge would lead you to the realm that the world tree is on and the path to the world tree is from point a in that realm to point b being the world tree okay i buy it i buy it i will say i really like the the kind of microcosm flavor of this card in itself uh the blue draws you two cards the white gains you two life the red deals two to a creature the black drains for two and the green makes you a two two bear yeah it's cute i like it very poetic yeah um, my next card, I, yeah, my next card is actually the channel pathways that's, that's bark channel and tide channel. Mm. They are stunning. Some of my favorite art I've ever seen in magic. Um, especially the like alt art full, the full art versions of them. I'm looking um, up right now. I, I much prefer the, the, the full art alt versions, but they're just stunning. Like I would, I would paint my wall, that whole thing. Like just that <laughs> art, like they both look amazing. Yeah. These are uh, sick. Yeah. Like far and far and above better than the others in my opinion, and some of the best art, like I said, I've ever seen in Magic. Yeah, this is really good. I like this a lot. Sweet. Next up for me, I've got the Colossal Plow Giant Ox Two Punch Combo, which I actually haven't (laughs) haven't played yet. Me neither. It's not exactly the best way to win a game of Magic. This isn't like Splinter Twin, where like Deceiver Exarch is still fine in its format of like Vintage Cube, and then you can put Twin on like a, I don't know, something else like a Zealous Conscripts or or like a value creature. These halves are not great on their own. I think the only reason you want to put Giant Ox in a deck is if, I don't know, you've got like a Starnheim Unleashed and you just need to stay alive and need to prevent people from dealing you damage. But the Plow is pretty unplayable without the ox. Yeah, it's like nearly impossible. I mean, not impossible. It's not impossible to get six power, but when you have six power, when do you want to use that to crew (laughs) a single vehicle that just dies to a lot of things? Yeah, uh, the the fact that it's crew six and like clearly meant for the ox, this is fun. I'm sure I will make a deck in the future that's like a 60-card casual deck that has four ox and four plow, and then, I don't know, four yoked ox, four other like nonsense... Maybe I'll make it a high alert deck so it's got the, the butts theme too. There'll be something fun with this at some point. Uh, I, I do w- like when they in- include these little things because while this one is a, is pretty obvious, it's like, do you get it? It's like, this one is just fun enough for me to be like, okay, I- I'm in for this one. It's a it's an ox pulling a plow. And if you get it to work, it's pretty sweet. I wonder where the design started for that though. Like, did they design the plow and then they're like, or did they come up with the idea like we want to do the, this whole like ox plow thing? Yeah. And they designed the, the plow card, and they're like, okay, how high do we need to make the toughness and the crewing on <laughs> the thing to make it not just a busted card? 
Because yeah. I feel yeah. like you could have bumped it down and made it like a crew four or five or something, and it still would have been a fine card, but would have actually been playable in non plow like non ox decks. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But maybe, then maybe do you not. then do you make the ox have four toughness yeah. or five toughness? Because then it's not as good as blocker. Eh, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I'm curious where the thought came from in that and if they actually put that much thought into it. So my last card here that I wanted to highlight was Rampage of the Valkyries. This, I know I just highlighted cards for their art, but Rampage of the Valkyries might be my actual favorite magic art ever. Like, the ch- the pathways, I think, are number two, number one, number, t- or number two, number three. Rampage of the Valkyries is phenomenal. There's so many... The color contrast is amazing. It's got, like, all the dark tones with the blacks, mm. and then there's, like, this beautiful blue-purple kind of, like, lighting in the back, and then the, the wing colors with the blue etching in, on the main Valkyrie that's in the front. Yeah. It's just so stunning, and I'm really sad we didn't get to draft this card because it was not actually in the set. Like, it wasn't <laughs> in booster packs. Yeah, I don't know what, what the deal was with that. I guess it comes in, like, a like a pre-con or something? It was either pre-con or in one of the supplementary products i i can't remember exactly but i know i wasn't in draft boosters and that was really mm. saddening because it's also a really good card yeah that's true i don't think i mentioned my favorite art of the set but um it, it's got to be the full art starnheim unleashed which actually has an alternate full art than it does the original that the normal starnheim unleashed looks great but the alternate art is just a little bit better for my last pick here i have wither crown which is a, a mediocre draft card right you'll play if your black deck really wants to make it to the late game but I like what this card did as a story in itself. I like cards that are like a, a, a one-card story. So this card tells a pretty simple fable, but it tells it really well. So Egan, the god of death, has visited this, this king. I don't know who it is. Maybe it's Narfi. I don't know exactly where this fits into the, the larger lore. But it visits some kind of ruler and gives this guy a choice. Die now or limp on and drain your, I don't know, great kingdom's uh, like resources from within, while ultimately being a pretty useless ruler. Uh, this really reminds me of uh, Lord of the Rings, when, when Theoden uh, is under Saruman's spell, and right before like Gandalf releases him, the, the art is kind of reminiscent of that. This, like well, withered old man, kind of white in the face, uh, possessed almost, very ghastly. Um, and of course, the gameplay suggests exactly the same thing as the, the, the fable does. Um, you can choose to sacrifice your creature right away, or hold on to it for a little bit longer and see if you can maybe remove the enchantment or do something about it. But while doing that, you're losing life, so you can't do it forever. Uh, and eventually, if you hold on for too long, you'll just die. So <laughs> uh, this one is a, a very, very cool one-off little tale, uh, and I didn't want that to get glossed over as it is just a common. Well, there you have it. That's that's. Flavortown call time. Any any closing thoughts from you, Ben? Uh, overall, I think it was a bit less than I was hoping for. Look, Norse stuff is like it's it's rad. It's cool. The metal thing that they went for, awesome. The alternate arts that they went for, a lot of them are fantastic. Uh, but I think overall, this set was just a lot, and I think that carried over into the art and the flavor and everything else. Um, to be honest, I, I still haven't seen all the alt arts for, yet in, in like, because a lot of them aren't on Arena. I probably saw them once in their sport and I haven't thought about them since. I might just go look back on those now. So I don't know. Maybe if I ever start opening more of these cards in paper, I'll, I'll have some other thoughts on it. But uh, it's it, I'd probably give this like a B if we're going to start grading uh, grading sets on their, their artistic uh, applicability. What do you think? Yeah, that's fair. I'm a little nervous actually coming out of this that we're going into a new, completely new plane. In the next set, I kind of wish we had a buffer of a pre-existing plane to, like, mm. give us a little bit of breathing room between this and, like, I honestly think they should have done Kaldheim, like, M21, Kaldheim, then ZNR, 
than Strixhaven mm. because yeah. Because the pacing, I think, would have made a lot more sense. Unless Strixhaven's going to be a much more succinct plane. But there are five different schools of magic and, you know, all the different lore implications of that and the history behind all the schools and stuff. Like, I don't imagine it's going to be very calm <laughs> from a lore perspective. So it's Five is a lot less than, like, 15 no, true. <laughs> I think it'll be able to be told much better. But yeah, it's yeah. still a lot of new stuff, whereas... Zendikar Rising didn't really give us anything new outside of gameplay mechanics, and I really appreciated that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think they could have flip-flopped the, the ordering that these sets came out, and I would have been a little happier. But we'll see. I might I might come back in Strixhaven and tell you that I was wrong, and it actually worked out perfectly. So keep that on okay. your radar. One one slight note. I'm looking at the uh, the alternate arts right now, and I do want to shout out Cole the Forge Master. Go look up that alternate art. It's it's just nuts. It's pretty sick. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so sweet. This is it's like the the cover of like a Star Wars DVD. It's awesome. True. Well, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for spending your time with us and listening to the podcast. As we mentioned at the beginning, definitely check out Discord if you're interested in talking with us or the rest of our community further and discussing some of the things we talked about. We definitely want to hear about those uh, color pie breakdowns uh, mm. on our listeners. Yeah. So so you know throw that in uh, in our general chat or something. Uh, if you feel so inclined. And of course, if you are not already and you want to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. If you do want to support the show, but you aren't in a place to do it monetarily, spread it around, share it with your friends, your enemies, your loved ones, <laughs> your hated ones, anybody that, who will listen. Um, that helps us a lot and definitely gets us meeting some goals that we set for ourselves this year as well. If you want to talk to us outside of the Discord, you can do so on Twitter. That would be the best place. Um, you can reach me at Rannick Galfridian, Ben at Betafish1, and the podcast at DraftChaffPod. And, of course, you can email us at DraftChaffPod at gmail.com as well. well. Talk to you next week. See you later, everybody. So for the sign-off, I wanted to dip into a well that we've been to recently, WandaVision. we uh, got to yes. talk about this anyway, right? Yep. So how many episodes are left? One? Yes. Next This this coming week, which is two days from the recording of this, is the finale. Oh, man. Okay, okay. So if you Spoiler haven't seen WandaVision yeah. yet, if you're not caught up, get out of here. Turn off yeah. the podcast. Go listen to LR or something. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so we, we were bound to have this conversation after the podcast ended anyway, so we may as well just do it now, right? Uh, what, what, what's going on? So how are they <laughs> going to resolve all these threads They're not. within one episode? So, so yeah. All right. So here's the thing. Multiverse of madness with Dr. Strange. We know is on the way. Yes. And we know Wanda is going to be in that, right? That, yes. that got confirmed a while ago. So is the, the thing that's going to happen, Wanda's going to blow up the multiverse and we're going to see X-Men and Deadpool running around and, uh, and, and the different Spider-Men that have been confirmed to be in the upcoming Spider-Man movie. And then Doctor Strange is going to have to come stitch it all back together in some semblance of normalcy. Is that where we're going? So I think that's where I would have thought we were going. And to some degree, I think that that's, I still think that. But since the first, uh, since, since, sorry, since the previous episode of WandaVision and today... We also got some other Marvel news that I actually think implicates what is happening in WandaVision. And hmm, that information okay. is the title of the next Spider-Man movie. They've officially announced the title of the next Spider-Man movie is Spider-Man No Way Home. Which tells huh. me that other Spider-Man are not coming to this universe. Peter Parker is somehow leaving and going to another multiverse and can't come back. Oh. Uh, that's, my, that's my thought. Huh. That said, and that's why maybe, maybe there is some stitching of multiverses and they come together in a yeah. weird way, sort of um, into the Spider-Verse-esque. And mm -hmm. that's how we have all of them together. But 
I am not sure exactly what that means. I do think that whatever resulting conflict is going to happen based on the after credit scene from the last episode of WandaVision Ooh, yeah. and the fact that we have a finale coming up, I expect there's going to be some some fighting, there's going to be some big battle, and the, that battle is going to cause a rift or a tear or something in the space-time continuum or however they're going to explain it away, and mm. that's going to cause some semblance of a multiverse yeah because we we already know multiverse of madness is literally the title of dr strange yeah. there will be multiverse stuff as to how that's going to come about i don't know i have seen spoil like not spoilers sorry i have seen rumors that people are speculating this new vision that was created is actually going to be the mcu version of the silver surfer which could be interesting. oh wow that would be very interesting huh yeah, I can see that. Uh, I I just don't see a way where this episode doesn't end with Wanda just doing a big Wanda blast <laughs> and, and somehow uh, like destroying the fabric of the universe in some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah, I mean, she got her name finally. They they called her explicitly the Scarlet Witch, which is that's true. Yeah. So she's. I mean, because everyone kind of knew her as the Scarlet Witch. Why did we all know that? I was talking to my parents about this because comic they're, book they're character too. So, so we all knew her as the Scarlet Witch. Did we all just know that because she was the Scarlet Witch in the comics? Up yes. until this point, she's never been called that in the MCU at all, right? Correct. Wow. Yeah, they like, never we, called like, her that. Even my dad knew, and he's not like a hardcore Marvel fan or anything. He watches the movies and has been watching the show for fun, but like, he was like, oh yeah, I knew that was Scarlet Witch. Why did I know that was Scarlet Witch? Yeah, so, well, that's there There are two things there. First, she's officially called Scarlet Witch, which is, which is mm. something. I don't know that it actually matters, but it's something. Actually, there are more than two things. They also <laughs> told us that she uses chaos magic, which comic fans yeah. would know that she already did, but they hadn't established that as being a thing in the MCU yet, so we have that. We also know she was already a witch prior to being experimented on by mm. Strucker and, and Hydra. So my question, since she was already a witch and her powers were just enhanced by ta tampering with the Mind Stone, what does that mean for Pietro? Was he already Quicksilver mm. before the tampering with the Mind Stone, or was he actually oh. experimented on and given powers? So is he born a mutant, or was... Uh... Right, is that how they're going to introduce mutants? Uh, that would be pretty convenient. Also, Pietro came back, and we haven't we didn't see him at all last episode. Did well, we? he didn't though. He didn't come back because Agatha admitted that she created him. Oh, but at the end credits of the uh, the well, previous he still, episode, he was still there. But I I think that I think that's still the that was still Agatha's creation. Just capturing what's her face as she was trying to yeah trying to break in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I, I still think she he's a peon or like some amalgamation of hers. Whether okay, yeah, sure. whether Wanda's chaos magic turns him into a real him, mm. who knows. Because obviously she can just spontaneously create vision, and he has powers and stuff. Although we yeah. haven't seen any proof that he can exist outside of her bubble, so true. You know. It's it's getting real weird, and I expect I really to not like have how answers. Weird they got it. Expect to not have answers though at the end of Friday. Expect to have a, one thing that I'll give them props for because the episodes. I was nervous about the episodes being so short. Yeah, they have been able to answer a lot of questions in very little time. Like there's very little mm -hmm. fluff in this show. That's true. Yeah, the that said. Great. That said, if they're going to do a half hour long finale, which I kind of expect it to be an hour, I, I'm expecting mm -hmm. it to be like double the normal length. But if it is, or it, even if it is, they're going to answer a bunch of questions, but they're going to raise a lot more than they answer, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm enjoying it. I, I thought it was great. Everyone was like freaking out about the uh, the, the, the fantastic line from the last one. Um, was it grief is just love persevering? And there was there was some internet controversy about that because then a bunch of like high tootin film dudes were like, oh come on, it's Marvel, it's corny. 
no, like it, it, I think that that line was really effective. Uh, I, I, I loved it. Um, and I, I do like seeing Marvel take this more serious tone, where like I don't know that they, they show a little girl getting childhood trauma. <laughs> it's, yeah, this isn't your average Spider-Man movie, you know. Like uh, I, I like to see this kind of thing. Um, I, I think everyone was. I don't know. We, we've kind of have. Uh, we had a decade of superhero fatigue. So if this is where Marvel takes itself after the whole Thanos arc, all right, I'm in for it. Let's see where it goes. 